0: Uh, Robert McGowan was the minister of this church for 44 years. From 1907 to 1951, through two world wars, with the depression in between. He baptised babies, saw them grow up, then sent them off to die in two wars. And then he ministered to their grieving parents. There's a list of some names there, some names there, and Robert McGowan's plaque is just there uh, next to Cirillo. When, now, I thought he must have started particularly early to uh, minister for 44 years in the one place, but he actually retired here as minister when he was 81. <laughs> Where did he get the fuel to keep going for that long? How did he not lose heart? What stopped him giving up and finding something easier to do or just retiring? I went looking for answers in a little blue A5 book called uh, uh, Ashfield Presbyterian Church, 1876-1976. to Perhaps you've seen one around. I know Cindy's got at least one copy. Um, And I found this quote uh, on... The 11th of October 1907, the Reverend R J H McGowan was inducted as minister. At the Welcome social, he stated the four principles on which he proposed to base his ministry: the atoning death of Christ for sin, the trustworthiness of the Scriptures, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and united prayer. Now, those sound like pretty good foundations for a lifetime of ministry to me, don't you think? How do you not lose heart? Well, that's the question 2 Corinthians 4 answers for us. And I think the answers there are pretty close to McGowan's. 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us that God has given us the clear message of the Scriptures, which is about the solid work of Jesus. And his Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in people's lives and we need to depend on him. It's pretty similar, isn't it? Remember in chapter 1 where we've come from, in chapter 1 we heard how Paul had suffered greatly, far beyond his ability to endure, so that he despaired even of life itself. He felt under the sentence of death. Then in chapter 2 we saw... The sorrow of broken relationships with the Corinthian church. So, in the face of both of those, how does Paul not lose heart? Well, uh, listen to his answer. Chapter 3, last week, uh, it described the glorious ministry that God had given him. Uh, there in chapter 3, verse 8, he talks about a ministry of God's Spirit. Verse 9, he describes how it brings righteousness. Uh, Verse 16, it's a ministry that turns people to the Lord and a veil that blinds them is removed so they can see God for who he really is. Uh, And then verse 18, it's a ministry that leads to people being transformed into the image of God made more and more like Jesus. And then he begins, chapter 4, and he says in verse 1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry we do not lose heart. That's what keeps him going. When there are plenty of reasons to give up, to feel so sorry for himself, to take a well-earned break, he doesn't lose heart because his work sees changed lives. Instead of giving up, what he does is open the gates and get out of the way for God to work because he knows that what God, he knows what God can do through him if he just allows God to work. His method is about power, not pitch. Power, not pitch, or a sales pitch. If you have a message that's as effective as the gospel, you just need to communicate it simply and truthfully. It's when you've got a poor product that you know people don't really need or don't really want, that you have to come up with a sneaky sales pitch and and hope that you can trick people into buying something. But the gospel's not like that. The gospel is powerful. God uses it to change people's hearts. Now, if you know that God's word is powerful, you just have to let it speak for itself. Uh, So that uh, influences the way Paul does his ministry. Uh, Look there in verse 2. We do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, we set forth the truth plainly. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience. You see, the best salesmen are those who have the best product. They don't have to sell it. They simply let the product speak for itself. That's what Paul's doing with the gospel. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, a preacher in America, in uh, in, uh, London in the 19th century, he said this about God's word. There seems to me to have been twice as much done in some ages in defending the Bible as in expounding it. But if the whole of our strength shall henceforth go to the exposition and spreading of it, we may leave it pretty much to defend itself. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Why, they are gone. He no sooner goes forth in his strength than his assailants flee. The way to meet infidelity is to spread the Bible. The answer to every objection against the Bible is the Bible. (laughs) Spurgeon's point is the same as Paul's. God's word is powerful. All you need to do is present it clearly, without tricks, as plainly and obviously as you can. Because it's, it's simply by hearing the message that God opens people's eyes. It's not about the cleverness of our words. So people need to hear that message loud and clear, without tricks. But it's something we're tempted to do, isn't it? There's this little nagging doubt that, well, that person looks happy enough, do they really need the gospel? Life's pretty good for them, I need to somehow jazz it up a bit, I need to have good marketing or good artwork, I've got to have interesting stories and maybe I need to stay quiet on the bits that are less attractive about the gospel, like sin and judgment and hell. We're tempted to think that way, aren't we? And yet Paul says the gospel is not like that. It's so powerful, we just need to make it as clear as we can. Remove anything that may cause misunderstanding or distraction. Because you see, misunderstanding and distraction is what Satan loves to do. Do you see it there in verse 4? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He will do anything to stop people seeing the truth about Jesus. Microphones not working. Computers that update at the wrong time. Kids that misbehave, cars that break down, sleepless nights the night before so you sleep in or get drowsy during church. Excuses, distractions that keep you from hearing God's word. Satan loves those things. But God's weapon, God's endoscope to deliver his bright light to the centre of our hearts is Christians speaking clearly the truth about Jesus. And so that will mean we do what we can to present things well. Plain, interesting talks that keep people awake, hopefully. Clear amplification. Explanations about what we're doing. Announcing page numbers. Providing Sunday school to help... uh, kids understand things at their level. specifically. Small groups, midweek that consolidate and prepare people to hear God's word and hold us accountable to one another. All done so that the message will be as clear as possible, so that Jesus can be as clear as possible. Because becoming a Christian is not simply about understanding a message. Becoming a Christian is about coming to know A person coming to know Jesus. Did you notice in verses 4 to 6 how Jesus is the centre of it all? What is Satan working against people seeing? He doesn't want people to see the light of the gospel. Sure, it is a message, but it's a message of the glory of Christ. He doesn't want people to see Jesus. And do you notice the summary, how Paul summarises his message in verse 5? We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus is the centre and the focus and the goal and the reward of the message. It's a great summary of the Gospel. There's more, but this is the starting point, isn't it? It's the centre. Jesus Christ is Lord. And then notice verse 6. It's the opposite of verse 4. God is doing what Satan doesn't want to happen. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. What for? To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is all about Jesus and seeing and knowing him. And we want to point people to him. So they can see how wonderful and glorious Jesus is. Now that is how God does his work. Through ordinary people telling other people. And then God opening their eyes. Ordinary people. There doesn't need to be anything special about the messenger. Uh, From verse 7, God uses jars, not stars. God uses jars, not stars. And Paul's point is there's a contrast between the message and the messenger, between the content and the conduit. One is powerful and the other is weak. Uh, Verse 7 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay, a glorious message carried by humble messengers, precious riches in a cheap disposable container. Life changing power being transmitted or carried by weak, sinful, imperfect people. Like a wad of money kept in an old shoebox under the bed. Like that handful of diamonds that you've got kept in the old flower pot in the garden shed. It's this contrast between power and weakness. Now, why would God choose to communicate his amazing son like that? Why not choose instead amazing people, impressive, charismatic, gifted, successful people? Wouldn't that suit the message better? Wouldn't it be more successful? Well, God chooses to do it this way because of what he says in the second half of verse 7, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God's chosen method of advertising is not to use the special attractive people, but to use normal, weak, everyday people. God wants to use jars, not stars. Which is a relief, isn't it? Put your hand up if you're a star. There are not many of us, is there? We're we're jars. Because when God does use us, it's obvious that the power and the change is coming from him and not from people. God has always worked that way, hasn't hasn't he? He's always worked through jars, not stars. When God chose Israel, he didn't choose them because they were the stars, because they were big or strong or influential. In fact, he chose them because they were the least. Or when Gideon's army turned up to fight the Midianites... God sent most of them home because otherwise they would think that the victory was from them. And so a huge army was defeated with just 300 soldiers and God got the glory. Or When King David was chosen to be king, Samuel overlooked the bigger, older, stronger brothers, the likely candidates, and instead God chose the youngest, the baby of the family. And what was God's reasoning? Because God said, I don't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. Weak on the outside, but full of God's strength on the inside. Now, it was no different with the Corinthians themselves. Uh, Here's what Paul said about the Corinthians in his first letter. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. uh, He said, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many of noble birth. (laughs) But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Why? So that no one may boast before him. And it was no different for Paul and his companions. God wants jars, not stars, so that his treasure can go in jars of clay, so that God receives the glory. But it's more than just God working despite an unimpressive messenger, despite blunt tools. It's not like a sports star of a team who manages to win the game for his team despite the rest of his team. That's not what's happening Paul is saying that God's power is seen because Paul is a fragile vessel, a a clay jar. God achieves his purposes exactly because Paul is unimpressive. God actually uses our imperfections and our flaws to make beautiful music. Imagine someone gave you a Stradivarius violin hundreds of years old, worth millions of dollars. The best sounding violins uh, you can buy. And let's imagine you decided it looked a bit grubby and so you would clean it up. And so you got out the steel wall and the, the sandpaper and the paint stripper and the hot soapy water and by the end of your couple of hours work, the violin looks just like a brand new one. But it wouldn't sound as good. It wouldn't give the beautiful resonance or or sustain or tone that these violins are known for because it's those imperfections and the grime and the the ancient treatment of the wood that contributes to its special character, to its quality. Without those weaknesses, there's not the, the amazing sound and the special music. Now, that's the way God wants to work with you. It's only as you recognise your weakness and your dependence on God that he can actually use you so that he can show that his power comes, uh, that the power comes from him, that the success comes from him. Do you see how it worked in practice for Paul there in verse 8? We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair we're persecuted but not abandoned we're struck down but not destroyed if you just looked at things from the outside paul and his companions they, they looked weak they looked broken they looked insignificant they looked defeated but the reality god was, at, was that god was actually working through that very weakness because paul recognized his weakness and look to God for dependence. And so God was able to use him. I wonder when these sorts of difficulties happen to you, whether your thought processes are the same. I think probably, if you're like me, you're, you're, the second part of the sentence is, is a little different. Hard pressed on every side, giving up. Perplexed, feeling sorry for yourself. Persecuted, try something else. Struck down, never get back up again. <laughs> your very persistence, your very stickability, I think are signs that God is at work in you, giving you strength. And just the fact that you're still there should make you stick at it for another week and rejoice that God is doing that you can't quite doing something that you can't quite see. Now, I think if this is true, that that God is at work in our weakness, it's got to have implications for the type of church we want to be. Uh, If a successful ministry is about weak and frail vessels, humanly unimpressive but dependent on God, then we should aim for a church like that, shouldn't we? Not that we deliberately try to do things badly, unprofessionally, uh, but make sure that our focus is not on doing things well, that our confidence is not on doing things well, that our confidence is not on professional presentation or slick graphics or great music or wonderful buildings or big attendance or even a new church vision or organisation and structures. Those things might help us, but our confidence is not to be in them. They will help us to be clear and to be organised and to love people well, but our confidence is not based on them. Our confidence is in the message and the one who works through our weakness. And if we really are trusting God, it's going to affect how we pray about what God does amongst us, won't it? We will be committed to bringing everything to him, ask that he will do his work through us, through us weak vessels, guiding us, preserving us, strengthening us, using us, so that people will see his Son. Now that's the ministry Paul goes on to describe in verses 10 to 15. Uh, And as he describes his ministry, he's focusing on what's beyond what he can actually see. Uh, Verse 12, he talks about how he suffers like Jesus but he recognises that as he suffers, the Corinthians and the, the other churches will know the life of Jesus. He dies daily so that they might experience life. Verse 13, because he believes in what he can't see, he speaks the gospel. And then verse 15, the end result is that the grace of the gospel reaches more and more people, and more people give thanks to glorify God. That's his vision for his ministry. And so Paul comes back to where he began. Verse 16, why he doesn't give up. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Do you see the connection between vision and what you do? His vision is to see the gospel growing and more and more people giving glory to God and recognising Jesus, therefore he doesn't lose heart. He can't see it, but he's going to trust God and work to it. God is at work not just through him, but God is at work in him. Uh, He continues though outwardly we're wasting away. That's what we see with our eyes. Yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. God is doing something in us and through us. On the outside, things look grim, dire, dangerous, deadly. Plenty of excuses to give up, but we don't give up. Because on the inside, something different is happening. God is at work. He's renewing our attitude. He's giving us the strength to endure, to not give up. But more broadly than that, God is at work making all of us fit for eternity, ready for heaven. You see, on the outside, what we look at, our bones are getting stiffer. The skin's getting a little saggier. The hair a little thinner and greyer. The eyes a little blurrier. The mind a little slower. The back a little tighter. Teary thought, isn't it? But you know, God is at work. We're being renewed on the inside, daily, says Paul. God is at work on your character. In fact, those things on the outside are God's method of working on your inside. He's conforming your thoughts and your words and your actions and your character into the likeness of Jesus. He's strengthening your faith. He's intensifying your hope. He's deepening your love. be honest, is that, is that describing your life? Are you seeing any evidence of that? As you get older, are you becoming more patient with people or less patient? Are you developing into a cranky old man or woman? Are you more generous with your time or are you, or are you becoming less and less patient, more and more in a hurry? Is your love for God's word growing or do you find it's boring to study the Bible? Are you more keen to see people come to Jesus or or do you just get tired when you think about evangelism? Are you getting more prayerful as you recognise your own weakness increasingly or or are you actually growing more self-dependent and less prayerful? All of those things are preparing us for eternity. They're making us fit for purpose, suitable for glory, so that we'll fit in into eternity. That's how Paul finishes the chapter, verse 17 and 18. For our light, which means not heavy, easy to bear, our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us God is using them to produce in us an eternal glory or prepare us for an eternal glory that far outweighs all of the troubles we're going through. And so, because that's true, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, what we're enduring at the moment, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Seventy. 80, 90 years, 100 years. That's nothing, isn't it, compared to eternity. Things might be gory now, but there'll be glory later. Eternal glory is the goal. Glory for us, rejoicing in the glory of Jesus. That's what long-sighted ministry now is about. Ministry that sees beyond the late nights The unappreciative, unresponsive scripture class or Bible study group, the poor singing, the thankless tasks you repeat week after week, the doors that are shut in your face, the friends or family who laugh at your faith. So don't lose heart. Paul ends the chapter the way he begins it. Don't lose heart. Paul didn't, he kept going because his eyes were fixed on what was unseen, on eternity, on what God was doing on his inside. Life is full of trials and struggles, but Paul's eyes are fixed on the eternal, the spiritual. And so he will proclaim his message to whoever will hear it, the message that Jesus Christ is Lord. The staggering, staggeringly good news that the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who created the universe by his word, actually shone his light into our hearts so we could see Jesus. That is true, so don't give up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, this... Reality of the treasure of your message, the treasure of Jesus in broken, simple vessels of our lives uh, might be something that encourages us, enables us to continue when uh, appearances encourage us to give up. Uh, Lord, we pray as we come to the Lord's Supper that that truth of you living in us, strengthening us, might be confirmed and strengthened and emphasised as we eat and drink Uh, and remember that you are in us. Uh, And we pray all of this so that you might be glorified. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.